Today we're in part four of Grow Forward. An interesting study done by neurologists where a brain scan was done uh, on people who identified as people of faith. And they specifically uh, focused on describing things about their lives where they felt connected with God. Some of those most powerful and intimate spiritual moments of their lives. Those included times of prayer, times of worship, times of solitude. Um, There was another group that was also interviewed, not the same group, and um, they were exposed to material possessions and famous brands and things that might interest them. The amazing thing about the brain scans were they identified identical areas in the brain that lit up. It's called the caudate nucleus, and it surprised the researchers that both things caused the same reaction. In other research, psychologists tell us that our brains tend to mispredict the things that will actually make us happy. Um, We often assume if we achieve certain things, then we'll be happy, such as I'll be happy if I'm admitted to the right school. I'll be happy if I find the right partner. I'll be happy if I make vice president or I get that promotion. I'll be happy if I have my dream house. Harvard psychologist Sean Aker observes this if-then perspective cannot be supported by science. Because each time our brain experiences a success, it moves the goalpost of what success looks like. If you got good grades, you have to get better grades. If you get that promotion, you have to get a bigger promotion. Um, If you reach your sales target, you've got to move that target to a higher level. Uh, sales target. If you buy that dream home, you've got to get a bigger home. Is it possible that our very own brains keep us from being generous? We're going to talk about roadblocks to generosity this morning. And if you um, have an outline in your program, I'd encourage you to follow along. We're going to talk about three roadblocks. The first roadblock is wrong focus. Having the wrong focus. Sometimes we just have the wrong focus on what's important. First thing I want us to notice is that faith sets, faith sees beyond the here and the now. And we talked about this last week. We talked about the focus of faith and our trust in God. So this is kind of a little bit of review. Faith sees beyond what's right in front of us, okay? Um, So this is review. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And the writer of Hebrews says, now this is the faith chapter. Now there there are several illustrations from the Old Testament of people who live by faith, examples of faith, people we should emulate. And so it begins here. Now faith is, this is a description. Faith 
is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's about trusting in invisible spiritual realities that we can't see, touch, smell, or taste. Okay? Faith connects us with the invisible God and his promises. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, this is a reminder from last week, and without faith it's impossible to please God. We have to trust him, he's saying, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Big difference between just believing that he exists and then trusting him with your life. Now the chapter goes on, and Hebrews chapter 11 to verse 13, after a list of people in the Old Testament, the writer says all these people were still living by faith when they died, demonstrating a lifestyle of faith. They did not receive things promised. They didn't get it. They didn't get what they wanted. But they had the promises. And they believed in God. And they were okay with God's timing. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth, that they were just traveling through, that this is not what life is all about, what we see right here and now. Yes, it's important, but it's not the ultimate. Hebrews 11, verse 16, continuing, instead, this group of people who live by faith were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Were they dreamers, or was this real? Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. A real city. A place where there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more dying. It's in Revelation chapter 21. It is very real. Also, faith identifies God's eternal value system. Faith identifies God's eternal value system. And a well-known passage that to remind us of this is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And the Apostle Paul writes this. So this is first century to the church at Colossae. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you have trusted Jesus Christ, as your personal Savior, you have a new identity, a new position, a new standing before God. And what the Apostle Paul, what Scripture is telling us, is that's where our focus needs to be. We need to be focused on who we are and our position in Christ. Verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things that are fitting of kingdom values. Watch uh, your brain light up when you focus on kingdom values. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. Which one causes your brain to light up? Reason? Why? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Life on this earth 
does have its purpose for now, but it does not contain ultimate reality. Living for Christ is what's going to matter ultimately. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Peter also in the first century says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter reminds us, okay, we're strangers, we're, we're exiles, we're aliens. This isn't where we put down roots for, roots for eternity. There's something else. And he says, be careful. Watch out. Because you're liable to focus on things on this earth that light up your brains. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, well-known passage. The Apostle Paul writes to this very same effect, do not conform to this pattern, to the pattern of this world. He says there's danger when we set our focus on the here and now. There is danger when our priorities and we focus on our happiness and our comfort. There's a danger when our lives are about the next thing the next iPhone or the next car or the next house or the next cool outfit. And then he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. God wants to work in us and transform us so his priorities will become our priorities. So the first roadblock is having the wrong focus. What are we focused on? What's important to us? What do we value as we go through this life? Second roadblock is a lack of contentment. A lack of contentment. Scripture says that money and stuff do not bring ultimate happiness. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 richest man of the world in his day. God also said he was the wisest man. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Solomon writes, whoever loves money never has enough. R really good question. D do you have enough? Is it may say something about your heart. Whoever loves money, I know we would... We would never say we love money. I know that. We could, I bet we could interview everybody in this room and none of us would say we love money. Big question is, do we have enough? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. There's, there's tons of uh, support for this and just uh, interviewing culture today. Um, Solomon says, this too is meaningless, meaning loving money. It's meaningless. Verse 11, as goods increase, as, as your wealth increases, uh, so does those who consume, consume them. Uh, the more we have, the more other people are interested in it, and the more security that we need, and the more focus we need to manage those and keep them from breaking down and keeping them repaired... It takes more and more and more. 
And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Next slide. The sleep of the laborer is sweet because his life is simple and he works hard and he just needs to sleep. Whether they eat little or much, but as the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. And Solomon is saying that it's possible that our wealth becomes toxic assets for us and begin to cause us harm. Next slide. Or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. If uh, our main goal is to leave a legacy of wealth, um, it's not going to have much value in the long run. It's not going to be eternally significant. And then there's Ecclesiastes 5.15, Job said this. Solomon says, Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. We can't take it with us. Um, We have a little picture here of, okay, that's an attempt. You probably won't get far. And then uh, you see, you've probably heard of, you, you've never seen a hearse and a U-Haul together. There's actually a few photographs on the web of real. Uh, this is not a real, uh, I don't think, unless they posed it. But um, there are actually a few examples of hearses pulling U-Hauls. Go ahead uh, and try that. Uh, so... Money and stuff do not bring happiness. Commit, uh, contentment is a heart issue. Jesus was interested in the heart. And um, that's what Jesus wants ultimately is our hearts that were sold out to him. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul. Um, if you remember the uh, context here, Paul was a prisoner in Rome probably chained to a Roman soldier. And it was over two years. It was a long trip to get to Rome and from Jerusalem to Rome as a prisoner and then two years as a prisoner in Rome. And here's what he says. I'm not saying this because I am in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul didn't have a lot when he was a prisoner. And he probably wasn't comfortable all the time. But he says, I have learned. There's something to learn. Contentment is something to learn. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances, because it's not the circumstances that ultimately make me happy. It's not the circumstances that bring contentment to my heart, Paul says. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. He could be content when he was hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. So what Paul is saying is, 
Contentment is not based on how much I have. It's not based on my outward circumstances. It's something inside. It's about the circumstances inside my heart. That's where contentment is found. And then he tells us in verse 13, he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's where the Apostle Paul finds contentment in his relationship with Jesus Christ. He finds the strength to be content, to have his heart okay with God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is another passage, verses 6 and 7, and the Apostle Paul uh, tells us, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Godliness plus contentment. They go together. My relationship with Christ gives me the strength to manage my inner circumstances to cope with life. Life is hard. Sometimes we are comfortable and have plenty and we can smile and say that we are enjoying this. But that usually doesn't last very long. But what about what's inside? What about our hearts? And then in verse 10, um, 8 through 10, uh, Paul writes, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. If God provides for our needs, the Apostle Paul says, I can be content. He says, those who want to get rich... Those who want more and more fall into temptation and a trap, a danger that our brains might trick us into thinking we don't have enough. We need a little bit more. We fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The Apostle James gives a great insight. This one hits home, I think, a little bit. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes fights and quarrels among you? 90% of divorces... Um, go back to quarrels about finances. It's not the only thing, but it's a major part of families breaking down. Quarrels about money and stuff. Certainly not the only thing. And he says, what causes these? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. Now, James is the brother of Jesus, and I think he knows pretty clearly what Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, that murder starts in the mind when we hate somebody, and I think he's making that illusion here. I don't know that he's actually thinking that the church is killing off people. Um, he says, you deny her, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. 
Sometimes I think believers won't ask God because they know it doesn't fit with his priority system. And so they just do it anyway. You just go ahead and get it. Go ahead and buy it. And then other times we find ourselves in need. And what if we ask God for help? What if he doesn't answer then? And, and here's what James says. He says, you, you do not have because you do not ask God. Or when you ask, you do you not receive because you ask God with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And you've left out God's priorities with, about generosity. Um, and one of the interesting things is contentment reduces a whole lot of quarrels in families. Um, so here's a question for us. What are my heart issues? What do I struggle with? Well, is it unbelief? You, you don't trust God. Sometimes it's hard to trust God uh, with our money. Uh, you don't believe that if you're generous with him, he will provide for you. You're not sure about his promises. You don't believe that God is really going to take care of you and your family and your needs. Another one might be insecurity. Are you afraid that God will fail you? It's a fear thing. Are you afraid about that God won't provide? It's kind of close to uh, the issue of unbelief. If you are generous, you're afraid that God's not going to provide. What about arrogance? Do you think you know better than what God says about generosity? Um, do you think your financial goals are better than God's financial goals? That's, that's arrogance. What about idolatry? Now, I, nobody here would say they're worshiping idols. Nobody would ever say that. I know that. But this is about putting your money and stuff ahead of God. Uh, it's about putting your money and stuff first and God second or somewhere else. And uh, Solomon would call this the love of money. And Jesus said, we can't serve two masters. Another one might be desire for control. I will handle my money. I don't want anybody else to handle my money. I don't want to put it into God's hands. I'm the owner. I'm the master of what I have. The last one is uh, poor money management. And this is why uh, parents, it's just so important to teach your kids, to train your kids how to handle money. Teach them young about generosity. Teach them about giving and saving and how to manage spending. Uh, they can learn that at home. And it'll have a big impact on them. But a lot of adults grow up without instruction about managing their money. And I don't know how you can manage money without a budget of some kind because a budget is just a financial plan about identifying your priorities. And uh, it's a tool, a budget is a tool to give direction to my financial resources. It enables us to set priorities with our money, to choose our priorities. It enables us to structure our priorities financially. It enables us to align our 
priorities with God's priorities. That's how it happens, with a plan. And this is what's important. This is what I choose. This is why I encourage uh, husbands and wives to do this together so that you can make we decisions, so that you can say we decided, and not that she said or he said, but we together decided what was important. And so sometimes you have to say no to things, and it's because we already decided what was important. We already made choices, and we need to stick to those choices. And a budget helps. It's just a plan. Some people think it's a dirty word. It's just a tool to help. So, question, when will I be satisfied with what God has provided for me? See, that's the issue of contentment. When will I be satisfied with what uh, God has already provided for me? One definition of greed is that greed is wanting more and more of what I have enough of already. When will I be satisfied? That's going to be a heart issue. The last roadblock is the epidemic of affluenza. Excuse me. The epidemic of affluenza. This is a word created in the early 1970s, made really popular around 2000 with a PBS documentary. And uh, it's taking the word affluence and influenza and combining them into one word, a new word, a new idea. And the um, definition of affluenza is uh, it's a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. That's pretty fascinating. This is what runs our economy, by the way. Um, this, is some, this is really modern. It's, it's an American issue. Now, other modern countries have this issue as well. We have just, in the last 20 or 30 years, been overtaken by this. And they're not ready to call it an actual uh, psychological uh, term, um, but it's been used in defense of uh, killing four people in 2013, and they won. That somebody was suffering from this. And uh, it's a painful, contagious socially transmitted. We get this from our culture. We get this from being conformed to the world around us. It's overload. It's not having margin. We work more and more, and then we need more and more, and that takes more and more time, and it causes more anxiety, and then we waste more things I read recently there are enough plastic bottles thrown away every year that we could circle the globe 12 times. That's not just America, that's the world. Plastic bottles that are thrown away. Uh, resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Okay. Uh, Jesus warned us about this problem of affluenza. 
Uh, Andy Stanley writes in our book, How to Be Rich, he says, greed is the assumption that everything placed in my hands is for our consumption. We get this idea, this is an American concept, if it's mine, I get to control it, I get to consume it, I get to decide everything. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, passage we've looked at already, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And we want to say, well, we think maybe it does to a certain degree. And uh, Jesus warned that, warned us of this. Greed is the assumption that everything placed in my hands is for our consumption. Now, I did a I did the research again. The global rich list says that if you make $32,500 a year, this is, keeps going down, $32,500 a year, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. Now, a lot of people think we're rich. And I think we're pretty much rich as well. On the average, every day, um, we purchase uh, 3,972,000 movies, uh, t- movie tickets. We, we, we purchase over um, 1.6 million songs online that we download every day. We, we purchase uh, 1,650,000 DVD rentals every day. We buy 7,500 flat screens every day. Every year, we spend $88 billion to look younger. I probably am not spending my portion. (laughs) Um, Every American drinks 24 gallons of bottled water every year, even though we don't drink as much as we used to. Every year, we spend $65 billion on jewelry. Every year, we spend $58 billion on lottery tickets. That's an act of faith. Every year, we spend $41 billion on our pets. 157 million Americans celebrate Halloween. That's probably going up a little bit because that was 2015. 68 million will dress in Halloween costumes. 12.9% of Americans will dress up their pets. $7 billion will be spent on Halloween. The average spending per person is $74 for Halloween. Costumes will cost $2.5 billion. Candy will cost $2.1 billion. Affluenza is infectious. And I think we have it in America. Jesus, the great physician, gave the antidote for affluenza. And we've looked at this passage several times. Let's look at it again. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Because he says, if you store up stuff, it's going to be temporary. It's not going to last. It's not going to make you happy. It doesn't have ultimate reality, and it has no eternal significance. 
and you can't take it with you. But the antidote, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust uh, moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that our brains tend to trick us. Jesus knew that if handled properly, our wealth could have eternal significance, could be involved in changing lives for an eternity, he knew that our wealth could have an eternal legacy. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And Jesus knew also that money and stuff might be our greatest test. Don't let affluenza steal your generosity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Jesus came from the kingdom of heaven, and he was a great king, honored there. And he came to this earth as a humble servant and he was raised as a day laborer and then he would lay down his life for you and for me he would die on the cross he would pay the penalty for our sins he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that we might be rich and have every spiritual blessing those are eternal we're going to celebrate communion today that reminds us of that, that Jesus gave his all for us. And um, our communion is open to um, all believers in Christ. Um, you don't have to be a member at the bridge, but if you are a follower of Christ, we welcome you. And I'm going to invite those who um, are going to serve us to come up front, and we're going to pray in just a minute. Um, Communion is a time where we take a small uh, piece of bread and um, it's a reminder, it's a symbol of the body of Jesus Christ. And we take the cup and um, it, it's a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are to remember and remember and this just calls us back again to, to refocus on what Jesus has done for us because we tend to get caught up in other things like money and stuff. And we are to be humbled and to, 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 rem, to be reminded that we're sinners saved by grace. So the way we uh, celebrate communion is um, after I pray, we'll invite you to come to the front and you can take a piece of bread and take a cup and walk back to your seat and then you're welcome to partake whenever you're ready. But before we do that, the scripture says we should examine our lives, and we just want to pause and do that. So let's bow in prayer. Father, we are humbled today before you, and we thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, who came and instructed us 
about eternally significant things, shared his heart and his desire for our hearts to be generous. God, you are a giver and you are a generous God and you've called your people to be generous. Lord, help us to be honest about our own hearts. Whether we've not trusted you or whether we've been arrogant or selfish or greedy, Show us, uh, God, what, uh, what is an accurate view of ourselves. Help us to identify anything we need to confess to you, whether it relates to our money or our personal lives or our families or our church, our work environment, our relationships with people. If there's anything we need to confess to you, we need to do that before we share in this time. We need to come before you and be cleansed. So just take the time to do that. And then, Father, I'm so grateful for the promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And you've made a way for us as Christ followers to come back and to make things right and to get a fresh start and a clean slate. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for the bread that reminds us of Jesus and reminds us of his life Thank you for the cup that reminds us of his crucifixion and the blood that was shed in payment of our sin. Thank you for the privilege to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.